US bond yields are down sharply this morning, and US stocks, they're up on hopes the Fed won't have to hike next month. That's after some weak jobs and some poor consumer confidence figures. That's coming up in our five things in five minutes. And then in our bonus deep dive interview, we hear from Jack Chambers about how the RBA might accelerate its quantitative tightening and whether that will add to the squeeze from the cash rate hikes this year to 4.1%. You kind of get this asymmetry where it won't have as big of an impact that QE did on the way when the RBA was building up its balance sheet. But first, in 5 and 5 with ANZ, number one, US bond yields are down around 10 basis points this morning, and stocks, they've rallied 1% to 2% in Europe and New York, after a fresh jolts report on US job openings was weaker than expected. There was also a fall in US consumer confidence. Here's ANZ's head of G3 Economics, Brian Martin from London. Both sets of data came in weaker than expected, and the markets have interpreted the data as indicating that the FOMC will not raise interest rates when it meets next September. In fact, it may not need to raise interest rates again. So we've seen a strong rally in the bond market. We've seen expectations of future Fed rate hikes dialed back, and as a consequence, equity markets have put in a strong performance. Number two, U.S. house prices rose again in June for the fifth month in a row. Brian says this indicates the rental part of U.S. inflation is likely to be sticky. It tells us that the housing market is still holding in very well, despite the large upward move we've had in mortgage rates in the United States. House prices rose 0.9% in June, which is the latest data that we have. That follows a 1% increase in May. And it is indicating that potentially the anticipated normalisation in rental prices over the next 6 to 12 months may not be as significant as uh, many are anticipating at the moment. In fact, it does suggest that there is an underlying floor in how far rental prices can normalise. Number three, we're watching out later today for Australia's monthly CPI indicator. ANZ's senior Australian economist, Adelaide Timbrell, is forecasting a slight rise in the annual rate to 5.5% from 5.4% in June. But she says that's mainly because of electricity price increases driven by the regulator, which the RBA is expected to look through. Number four. Tomorrow, we're expecting strong GDP figures from India, with the annual growth rate in the June quarter forecast to rise to 8% from 6.1% in the March quarter. Here's ANZ's India strategist and economist, Diraj Nim. The most notable factor is India's investment spending. And I have always maintained that it was a very unlikely candidate in a post-pandemic economy that investments would be taking off. But then, very surprisingly, they have held very steady for the past so many quarters. And of course, the, the government support to infrastructural development is helping a lot. So I think if you look at all the high-frequency indicators of capital goods production, imports, infrastructure goods production and imports, we continue to derive a lot of comfort that, you know, investment spending is growing very healthily. Number five, and all that growth in India is also helping the rupee. Diraj points out it has held up remarkably well over the last six months, even with the strengths in the US dollar. He says the Reserve Bank of India is helping as well to stabilise the exchange rate, which will help manufacturers invest in imported equipment. There's one more reason too. 
The second objective, of course, is that, you know, we have faced alarming inflation last year and inflation has re-emerged as a pressure in the economy with the food price inflation shooting up. So a stable exchange rate helps uh, impart predictability to inflation trajectory going forward. It also limits, you know, the imported inflation problem that we saw ample of the last year. ANZ's India strategist, Diraj Nim there. So yesterday we heard part one of our bonus deep dive interview with ANZ senior rate strategist, Jack Chambers, about how the RBA might speed up its quantitative tightening. But will any tightening effect on the economy be the same size as the loosening effect when the RBA was buying bonds through quantitative easing way back in 2020 and 2021? Here's Jack again with part two of our deep dive. There's a lot of research on this topic about the relative efficacy of quantitative easing, buying of bonds and quantitative tightening, central banks selling their bonds. And most of the research suggests there's an asymmetry in those impacts. That's because when banks do quantitative easing, they're usually doing it when rates are at zero. For the RBA, when it started quantitative easing, the cash rate was at 0.1%. So in some ways, the impact of quantitative easing partly comes through by anchoring expectations. Central banks showing that they're willing to buy bonds is a way of saying, we're going to keep our cash rates really low for a really long time, which in some ways was the point back in 2020 when the RBA started QE. With quantitative tightening, that impact on expectations is less strong. The RBA has already taken the target cash rate to 4.1%. It's already re-anchored market expectations more than four percentage points higher. So quantitative tightening won't have that same flow through to the expectations channel. So you kind of get this asymmetry where it won't have as big of an impact that QE did on the way when the RBA was building up its balance sheet. And so we we know at the moment they're doing passive QE, which means you could see a slow wind down of the bond pile over a decade or so. But if it does a more active type of quantitative tightening, how much more quickly could it run down that pile and what sort of impact could it have? Because there's different ways they could do the QT, isn't there? Others have done it different ways around the world. Yeah, so different central banks have approached it quite differently. For instance, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, uh, they're currently selling some of their bonds to the debt management office, so the government office that issues debt on behalf of the um, the New Zealand government. Uh, the Bank of England is quite different. It sells bonds directly to the market, so they will hold an auction, much like the UK Debt Management Office holds an auction, and it will sell market bonds directly to investors or banks. We think it's slightly more likely that the RBA would sell directly back to the AOFM, which is the body which issues debt on behalf of the government, but it's far from definitive. There's no real indication on that. And in some ways, there's an offsetting impact to that. Because if you look at fiscal outcomes for Australia over the last few months, they've been very strong. The budget surplus for the financial year that just ended a month ago is probably on, in, on track to be about $20 billion larger than expected. That means $20 billion less issuance is needed. So in some ways, there's this natural offset where the RBA is um, selling more bonds, but offsetting that is the government has a bit less need to borrow. So there's almost like this natural offset happening. And if they do it that way, by selling it direct back to the government rather than on market, yep. is there a difference in impact in terms of interest rates, do you think? Not necessarily. Uh, ultimately, it's still the same amount of additional supply will have to be absorbed by the market. One difference might be that if they sell directly back to 
the government body, the AOFM. The AOFM could then retire that debt and choose to issue debt that it thinks fits best within its borrowing strategy and which the market most wants to absorb. So, in some ways, it allows the AOFM to better tailor exactly where that additional issuance comes. But that might have small idiosyncratic effects. But like the big picture effects, it doesn't really change the story. So, we're not quite at the level of Japan where the Bank of Japan owns just about everything. <laughs> but in Australia, the RBA owns you know a good 40 to 60% of the issues going out for seven or eight years. Um, what sort of impact uh, would you see if the RBA was to provide more liquidity, make some of that holding open for trade, whereas at the moment it's locked up in the RBA's vaults? So at the moment, the RBA operates something called a securities lending facility, where it's lending some of the bonds that it owns to the market when they can't get them somewhere else in the market. So effectively, what we could see if the RBA decreases its bond holdings is that some of that market borrowing is fulfilled by greater bond holdings in the market itself. So it's almost like by selling, the RBA needs to lend less. ANZ Senior Rate Strategist Jack Chambers there. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was 5 and 5 with ANZ for Wednesday, August the 30th. Catch you tomorrow with details on Australia's inflation rate. This podcast was recorded for publication on behalf of ANZ. All associated disclosures and disclaimers can be viewed using the link in your media player or the ANZ website through which you access this podcast. All care has been taken to report the views of ANZ Research in the creation of this podcast, but as an independent host, any differing interpretations are strictly mine and not ANZ's. Feel free to contact your ANZ point of contact with any questions.